All right, good morning. We are going to go into scripture reading today. Uh, the passage is going to be in the book of Acts, starting in chapter 3, specifically uh, chapter 3, verse 12. And we're going to read until chapter 4, verse 4. If you'd like to follow along in a physical Bible, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you, um, underneath, and you can find this passage starting on page 1659. And just for the reverence of the word of God today, would you stand with me while I read scripture? It's a long one, but I think we can do it today. Acts chapter 3, starting at verse 12. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this by faith in the name of Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what had foretold what had been foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised to do long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Though your offspring, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. And the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Amen. Thank you. You take a seat. Thanks, Becca. I'm sure that's exactly what Peter sounded like. It's great. Um, hey, I know some of you are um, here brought by family. Some of you are here to support people who are going to get baptized in just a little bit. Some of you are regulars. 
Um, Easter tends to be one of our more mixed crowds, right? And um, one of the things that um, I've um, experienced as a person is I don't like being accused of things. I don't respond very well to accusation. I'm a really conscientious person, and I think that you should do what you know is right, and I think that, like, you, you should fill responsibilities. I want to bring honor to my family. I'm like that sort of person. So when somebody accuses me of something, I tend to take it, like, really personally, and my immediate reaction is to fight them. And I'm pretty good at fighting, at least verbally. <laughs> Mainly verbally. Um, and, uh, I don't, I don't respond well. And, and I think everybody knows that. Like, as you get older, you realize that, like, there's a lot of false accusations in the world. And if you just, like, accept everybody's accusation of you, then everybody's going to manipulate and control you. And so you can't just be like, oh, sure, whatever you say is terrible about me is, you know. But at the same time, I'm now in middle age, is what they probably call it. And um, I have also recognized that some of the best moments of my life have been when people have accused me of things especially if they, they, because they were true. And because those people knew that whatever they were accusing me of was going to destroy my life or hurt me or hurt other people. And they were doing me a great favor and it was a great grace that they were accusing me of something. One of the things that New Testament scholars point out about virtually all of the sermons in the book of Acts de declaring the good news about the risen Jesus is that they all have what's called an accusation section. <laughs> Some are longer than others. Um, and so one of the things I just want to try to point out today and connect it to the testimonies you're going to hear before the baptisms is that the resurrection itself, literally Jesus coming out of the grave and being raised from the dead, is the worst accusation you'll ever face and the greatest invitation you'll ever receive in your life as a person. It is itself an incredibly damning accusation against you personally. And it's the greatest invitation you'll ever receive in your life. So let's, obviously that's a two-pointed sermon, right? It's Easter, so I gotta preach shorter. Um, Peter doesn't really spare a lot here. He's very direct, and the accusation is really powerful. He, he basically tells these people, and this is true for us by extension, that God raising Jesus from the dead is essentially God saying all of your judgments about Jesus in your sort of natural self are all wrong and dangerously wrong and in bad faith. That's what he said. Um, you see, this, like, in how he talks to him, he says, listen, he said, friends, you see this? So the story here, right? There's this guy. His name is Beautiful. He's crippled from birth. He sat at the main entrance of the temple and begged for money. So everybody had seen this guy, okay? And all of a sudden, he's like prancing through the temple, completely healed. And so people are like, what does this mean? And John and Peter go, okay, first of all, it wasn't our power or righteousness or holiness, right? That made this man well. So then the question is, well, whose power and holiness made this man well? And he said, listen, the God of our fathers, the ones we all claim we believe as God. He's speaking of Jews mostly, right? And he says, our fathers, the God of our fathers, glorified 
his servant Jesus. Now that might not sound like a particularly technical phrase to you, but sometimes Christians or people who've been to church think of glory as resurrection, being in heaven. Like, have we just refer to heaven shorthand as glory? It's like, I'm going to be in glory, right? But that's not really what the word means, okay? In almost every anthrop- anthropological context, in historical context, including the Bible, glory is the opposite of shame, right? Shame is when you are made an example of so that everybody knows that you are not a trustworthy part of the community, and you are placed and put in a place in which everybody understands you are bad. You are the last person anybody should want to be like, and all of your power is taken away. You're put in a place of shame. That's what shame means in like virtually every historical context in the entire world. It doesn't mean you're unworthy of love. It means that the culture that you're in says that you're untrustworthy and nobody should want to be like you. All of your power is taken away, including your good name, and you're put in the most powerless place possible so you can't keep hurting everybody. That is the position of shame. Glory is the exact opposite. That the one who has the power to decide the standing of another takes them and places them up high and says, this person's position, this person's name, this person's character is to be envied by all, to be honored by all, and to be submitted to by all. And so Peter starts out by saying, listen, God took his servant, which is a technical term from the Old Testament, meaning his coming Messiah, the person, the one human being who would totally serve him, right? And he glorified him. And the reason that's important is because you tried to put him to shame. Right? He said, he said, listen, what you did was you disowned him, though he was the holy and righteous one, the one you should have embraced. You handed him over, and the reason why we know doing so was in bad faith is because you received a murderer instead of him. You so wanted to condemn a man, you didn't understand that in this moment where the Romans were willing to give you somebody, not just not kill him, you said, give me this murderer, Barabbas, who's an insurrectionist and a murderer, instead of Jesus, because we want this Jesus killed, right? And he said, because the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, became incarnate in a human being, literally the one who spoke life into being became, in a way, killable. And you, the very ones who have received the gift of life that God has given, instead of reflecting it back to him and embracing the one who created life, you tried to kill. In fact, you bodily did kill the author of life. And then he says, but God raised him from the dead, meaning God judged your judgment. God shamed your shame. God reversed every judgment in your heart about this Jesus who is the Christ, and he judged it in such a way as to say, no, you tried to put him to shame, but what he deserves is glory. I'm lifting his name up to the highest possible place, and what that means is, is that because of your judgment, you deserve the lowest possible place. You deserve to be put to shame. Which is why one of the promises of the gospel in the Old Testament into the New Testament is this promise where the apostle says, those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Right? And he says, Peter says, listen, and we are witnesses of this. We have seen that living Christ. And here's the problem. Now that you see this man healed here, and we know it's not by our power and righteousness, by our name that did it, whose holiness and righteousness, whose name made this happen? And the answer is, it's Jesus. And he is so glorified that he was not just raised from the dead, he is now ascended into heaven, and he is so high that his name, the 
the diminution, the moving out of his authority in all of creation flows through those who put themselves under his name and authority, who recognize that he is glorified and the one who should be honored. And through those who believe, such power from him can flow such that you are now witnesses if you see this healing. Does that make sense? So, what we're supposed to recognize when we read this is that this is about us. Right now, today, 2013, Madison, Wisconsin, inside this room, this is about you and us. We all go through life judging all kinds of things. We literally have to to make sense of our world. Our minds are constantly judging everything. But what we're always doing, especially when we get accused of things, is judging it in such a way as usually to vindicate ourselves, to make us the good person, right? I've done prison ministry where I've been in prisons talking to people who had been convicted of killing people, and they acknowledged that they killed those people, and they still had a way of talking about themselves where they were a good person. And not because they repented and changed, but just like, yeah, but look, I don't play these games other people play. And so you're like, how do you, how do, you do that math? But see, here's the thing. Every person does that math. Every person has a way that they work things so that they're a good person. And the fact is, is that that is not what the gospel teaches. The gospel teaches is that in our minds, we are constantly putting Jesus to shame. We are trying to say that he's not really as holy or as righteous or as morally beautiful as he really is so that we can feel okay and that he's not as powerful as he is. He's not the author of life. We don't owe our lives to him. Our lives are ours. We don't owe him to anybody, right? And what God is saying is when he raised Jesus from the dead, he's like, you're wrong about both of those things. You deserve shame, and he deserves glory, and he is the author of life, and you owe him everything, and your life is not your own. It's pretty bad. Accusation. And generally speaking, the way we, we respond to that, if it ever becomes clear to us, is we tend to act defensive and reactive like we respond to most accusations. Who are you to talk to me like that? Or I don't have to listen to this, or I'm not coming back here. I'm gonna, right? Or attack the source. Who is this Peter? Or maybe the, the Bible's probably not even true and like, whatever. But Peter's like, no, listen, I'm a witness to this. I literally myself and this guy John and a bunch of others saw him risen from the dead. That is the servant of God is glorified. That is we are judged. Right? Now, that may not sound really nice to you, but it is the prerequisite to really be able to embrace fully what it means to believe in or be healed by or be changed by the name of Jesus. One of the things that sometimes bothers me in the Christian church is you almost get the sense when people talk about the name of Jesus like we think that we're wizards and that the, like saying the name of Jesus or Jesus, in Jesus' name or something like that is an incantation by which some wizardry will take place so that everything we say, apply the name of Jesus to is going to happen. And then we get really disappointed because it doesn't at all work that way, right? And this dynamic of the idea that it is in the name of Jesus that we can be delivered, that we can be saved, that we can be made right with God, that our sins can be wiped out, that times of refreshing can come. All of that flows through this recognition that Jesus is the glorified one, not the shamed one. And therefore, it is under his rule that all these goods that come from God happen. And since Jesus is glorified, that is ascended into heaven as our great high priest, he is not physically present with us. Otherwise, he would be preaching right? But he is with us because of his standing and his authority and that he is over us. And therefore, it is by his name and our allegiance to his name and our belief in his name in which we enter into his authority and his kingdom and his rule and therefore his redemption, right? Now, 
Um, what goes along with this in- enormous accusation is in- was in the best invitation you'll ever receive to. Right? Built within this, um, Peter first says, okay, listen, I've accused you, but listen, I want you to understand something. This whole thing is about the fact that God has healed someone entirely from something that could be healed no other way. Like we're, I'm talking to you about a healing God did. And then he says, listen, I understand that all of the ways you've accused and tried to shame God in your life, in your own mind, to justify yourself and to not pay attention to him, and to think that your life really belongs to you, not to the one who created life, and to think that you, you're good enough that you don't need the righteous and holy one to be telling you what to do, and you don't want that. Like all that stuff. He says, listen, I understand that on some level, we as humans are operating in ignorance. When Jesus was on the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He wasn't lying. They knew what they were doing enough to know what they were doing was blameworthy. They knew that they were killing somebody that didn't deserve to be killed, and they knew that they'd ask for a murderer to be handed to them. They, they knew in their hearts that what they were doing wasn't right, but they didn't know they were trying to kill the author of life. They didn't know that this was literally God's Messiah. They were blind to it. They were delusional. They were limited. They were weak. They were human beings. And so Peter says, listen, you, you understand, the God who accuses you is also the God who understands you. The, the fact that he, has, he's, he is going to tell you the truth and come literally hell or high water, you are going to face that truth, does not mean that he is not imminently and deeply and incredibly understanding of how you feel and your experience and your own moral participation in the murder of his own son. God's capacity to have compassion on people who transgress against him in the wildest possible way is almost limitless. He understands it. He understands it. He knows that there's this, in a way in which for us, in our hearts, it is, there is an ignorance, right? And his invitation is fairly simple, right? All through the, the book of Acts in particular, the phrase that's used the most is, turn to God. Turn to God. Right? Every preacher, even in the argument they have in chapter 15 about whether or not Gentiles can become Christians, he says, let's not make it hard for those Gentiles who are turning to God. The entire enterprise lays upon this thing called faith. Right? I mean, Peter says it fairly straightforwardly. He says, by faith, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing. Right? And then he says in verse 19, Therefore, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, the times of refreshing may come, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Does that make sense? So what he's saying is this. To turn to God is to make a—is to change your course dramatically. What that means is, is that, first of all, negatively speaking, you have to forsake a course. There's a course that you're on that you have to agree to leave, okay? The word repentance doesn't mean become holy before you come to Jesus. It doesn't mean that. There is no moral demand that is a prerequisite to come to Jesus. It is by definition the first thing, okay? Now, in repentance, you recognize that the things that you've done— that are morally blameworthy are wrong, and you recognize that the new course is going to be in a different direction. So you recognize the future 
is going to change. But it has to begin by a change of course. I'm not going to go in this direction that is away from God towards trying to shame what he has called glorious. And I'm going to turn toward God, and I'm going to receive everything that comes in that path, which starts with your sins being wiped out. This God who accuses you in this way, the purpose of the accusation is just to turn you back to him so that through the death of his own son, he can wipe out your sins. And then he can bring times of refreshing into your life. He can heal you. He can change. He can direct you in different ways. You'll, you'll find that your life becomes better in certain ways. Not in every way, because you will be entering into the path of shame that is Jesus' shame, which is noble but suffering, right? But there are a lot of things in your heart and the peace of God and how you understand yourself as a person and whether or not you can be honest with yourself and learning how to really love other people and putting them first and how that changes your whole dynamic of life and what happens in you is incredibly refreshing, healing, right? And then ultimately he says, and then I can, he'll give you the Messiah. Because think about this. If you're, if you're sitting there and you're like, I've done all these things that you could accuse me about and how I've really treated Jesus in my heart and soul. What's going to happen when I meet him even if you wipe away my sins. And, and what Paul, God is saying is, ultimately, in glorification, I will, you're literally going to receive Jesus himself. I'm going to give you your Messiah back. The one you rejected, the one you didn't see, I'm going to give him to you. And he's, and he, he's going to be yours, and you're going to be his, and you're going to exist under his glory, which ultimately will lead to our resurrection and life. And the last thing he says a few verses later is he says, if this happens, he says, God will bless you by turning you from your wicked ways, is what it says. God will bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. That is, it will really change your life. Really profoundly. Um, and sometimes we think of giving up things that God says are wrong, and that, that be, that's a liability or a cost of coming to Jesus, or living in his spiritual life. And what Peter says is, he says, no, you don't understand. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. God is greatly improving your existence and the existence of others. He's making you capable of love. He's going to bring you into an, a much fuller life. It's going to be a little bit harder, especially on the front end. But he's going to bring you into a life that is going to be so much fuller that it's, it, you're going to recognize it as a blessing. But it is going to include you turning from your wicked ways. But that's part of the gift. That's actually not a cost. He, it says he will do it. When, when you turn to God and you start walking in knowing your sins are forgiven and the peace that comes from that, and having that purpose, and knowing that you belong to him, and knowing that you're a son and daughter, and you experience his increasing times of refreshing, it becomes part of that blessing to turn away from your wicked ways. So much so that the day could actually come when you could receive accusations like the ones that came against Jesus, and you could handle them as nobly as he did, you know. And so you'll see this in the testimonies that we hear in a little bit, that um, some of the stuff that they'll say is that um, they turned to God at some point. They'll say that they did it particularly in the name of Jesus, through faith in the name of Jesus, because he is the one who offers that salvation, as well as the accusation. And to be put under and brought back out points to our, 
death to an old life and our being raised to a new life, but also to our belief that we're going to die and be raised by this Christ who God raised from the dead into his glorification, right? And that we have faith that God is going to do the good that he said. And you'll, you'll see this shape in most of the testimonies. There will be a section of self-accusation. Self They'll be like, I was wrong. I was doing this in my life, and I was wrong. And God was right. I tried to shame God's way, and he glorified his way and accused me, and I realized it was true, and through it he set me free. And so I turned to God in Jesus' name, and then now I'm walking with him and experiencing his times of refreshing, and I, I belong to him. So as we, as we go to that, I, I hope that you'll see that the raising of Jesus from the dead is a very intense thing pointed at every human person. It's why in John 3.17, Jesus said, he said, listen, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through me, right? But he also says, anyone who believes in the Son will live, but anybody who, who disbelieves or rejects the Son stands condemned already because they haven't believed in God's one and only Son. And you're like, well, why would that be so intense? And the answer is, because in the existence of the Son himself, your heart is morally tested. He is the author of life. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the one God has glorified because he deserves it. And how we judge Jesus intrinsically judges us. We judge ourselves. And so to reject him means that we stand condemned already. The one God uncondemned, if we in our judgment condemn him, we condemn ourselves. We confirm that we don't want to have our sins wiped out and to have his time of refreshing and that we believe that he's the author of life. And so as you listen to these testimonies, I hope that you'll re-recognize this in yourself. If you don't believe in Jesus yet, you can. It's simply, simply the act of putting your faith in him and telling him in something like prayer that I want to come to you, I want to turn to you, and I want my sins to be wiped out. And listen, for those of you who are Christians, you might think I'm talking about the people who are just here for Easter, and I'm not really, because do, do you notice how this is a little bit of a thick sermon? Like in the sense that like, it's a little bit rich that Peter is preaching it, right? Because what did Peter do? He denied Jesus three times. And he's like, you guys denied or disowned Jesus. Like he's not, he's not saying this like lightly. When Peter says it, he says it as somebody who has literally just done it. He was part of handing Jesus over. He couldn't even say, no, I belong to Jesus, to some servant girl who's like, aren't you a Galilean? He's like, no. Like, he personally sees himself as having participated. And the reason he participated, he was trying to follow Jesus. He was the only male person trying to stay close to and follow Jesus. And even there, he denied him. He disowned him. And there's a thousand ways in which, as people who belong to Jesus, we are going to be tested in all kinds of ways, whether or not we're going to disown Jesus or not. There are so many teachings of Jesus that if you believe them and you say you believe them, culturally people are like, well, you're going to be, we're going to put you in the place of shame. And you're going to be like, great, put me in the place of shame because God has a way of raising from the dead people you put there if they trust in him. And I'm going to. And when you get dunked and pulled out, when you except the death and resurrection of salvation, you recognize that you may and very likely will be put to shame. And that's where God looks for his own to raise them to glory. Let's pray. God, as we um, think about this, 
as we listen to testimonies, as we, as we celebrate what you've done in these folks' lives, I pray that you'd help us to, to honor and to accept and to face your accusation and your invitation. And to be able to feel the freedom of turning to you with all our hearts, to know that it is in the name of Jesus that you will wipe out our sins and bring times of refreshing and give us a future with Christ and turn us from our wicked ways and that these things are all blessings, great blessings. Help us to open our hearts entirely to that renewal, to receive you, Holy Spirit, to work in us spiritually, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.